It's Jess. Welcome back to the Not Carrie Bradshaw podcast where I discuss all things style, wellness, pop culture, and whatever else I feel like discussing from week to week. Welcome and welcome back, guys. I'm trying to stop saying guys because patriarchy, but it's just so easy to lean into. So welcome back, folks. I'm really happy and grateful that you are joining me again. I took a little sabbatical from our last usual posting date because what I want to talk about today, the meat and potatoes of what I want to get into, I really wanted to give myself time to think and to have some productive discussions with some friends of mine who are more well-versed and I wanted to be able to tie all of my thoughts and opinions and hopes for the future together in a way that made sense and wouldn't come out like the ramblings of an unwell person. So that's why uh, you are hearing from me for the first time in a little bit. But I'm happy that you're back with me. As per usual, I have to kick things off with a fashion tip. This fashion tip is for the guys, for the fellas, speaking heteronormatively, or not, you know, um, let me just get to it. If you are a person who cares about the opinions of the ladies, I can only speak for myself and the other lady folk who I know. I really just want to encourage my male listeners to become a part of the Thighs Out initiative. I really enjoy seeing the guys, um, with the thighs out, I'm j- I am I really enjoy it. I have a thing about, number one, a perfectly tapered, cuffed ankle in those Nike athletic wear pants. It's just, it's a thing. Just a little, just having a little bit, the perfect amount of the ankle at does a lot for me. Not out, at. Does a lot for me. Um, I also quite enjoy that the guys are leaning into... Wearing shorter shorts. I mean, listen, the basketball players of yore, the funk singers of yore, they were not afraid to show a little skin. And I want for you all to lean in as well. I personally am trying to find a way. And and if anyone has any ideas, I quite enjoy running shorts and stuff like this cute little vibe that I'm seeing for the spring and the summer of these cute little matching sets you know with shorts that are of a nylon you know swishy swishy type feel and I'm just trying to find out for folks like me where our thighs get along really really well how do y'all avoid the, the not necessarily the chafing, but I guess you could call it the chafing, the rising up of the shorts in the crotch area? It stops me from wearing shorts that aren't denim because I don't like constantly walking down having to pull my shorts down from my crotch area. That is not cute. What do y'all do to keep the shorts in place? Do we need to come up with a tape? system report back i need a fashion tip from those who are well endowed in the thigh area who wear short shorts that aren't denim let your homegirl know because i'm trying to be out you okay i got my first fauci ouchie about to get the second about to be fully vaccinated in these streets i'm coming for your daddies 
Maybe your baby daddies. I don't know. I don't know. We're in the roaring 20s. I'm in my prime. I'm about to be out here. And I really want to know how to best highlight my thighs. But I'm also trying to see the thighs of the dudes this summer. So that's my fashion tip. This episode, we're going to discuss some light things. And then we're also going to, I'm I'm calling y'all in as a family, as a community. We got some shit we need to go over. So stay tuned. All right. Everybody, so let's jump into the meat and potatoes of this episode. First of all, y'all know how much I love TV. I watched the Tina Turner documentary last night on HBO Max, and I walked away from it just feeling changed. A lot of people feel like it was profoundly sad, and it was some of her revelations about her life, I think were quite surprising to a lot of us because you're this ultra talented, ultra famous person who's lived what from the outside looking in looks like multiple lives. And to know that she doesn't feel like the good outweighed the bad enough in her life to have made the bad worth it. And that she didn't feel like she had ever been loved in her life. You know, I think for people who don't receive proper love, affection, affirmation, all of those good things from their parents at a core level, it does something to you. And I understand why people didn't feel warm and fuzzy (laughs) walking away from this documentary. And especially because it must really suck to be a victim of that kind of abuse and to never be able to escape that, for that to always be a part of your identity and a part of your story. And I watched the Jane Fonda documentary a few years ago, and I was really upset that just like with her and with stories about like Coco Chanel, so often when we tell stories about impactful women's lives, They have to center the men or, you know, in Jane Fonda's documentary, each chapter or section of the documentary was legit named for the man that she was married to or partnered with at the time. And I found that so upsetting. But one of my friends had to explain to me that for a lot of women, particularly older women, that is a hallmark of their life. Um you know, who they were partnered with did impact so much about who they were at the time and and who they were able to, to grow to be. And there's a pattern that I'm noticing because I also just watched the Audrey Hepburn documentary because I really, really love, um, I love her as an actress. Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of my favorite movies despite the problematic, um, you know, cultural appropriation And it seems, you know, like I said, they have to, they seem to have to center the men in these women's lives in order to tell their stories. And each woman seemed to have found a a better 
more true kind of love later in their life. So what I pulled away from the Tina Turner documentary, while yes, it was profoundly sad, there was also something really beautiful and empowering about her ability to reclaim herself, to come back to herself, to redefine herself at an age when a lot of women are looked at as disposable, especially in the entertainment industry. And when we look back at um, even something like Lovecraft Country that I reviewed last year when it was um, out, there was an episode where one of the characters got to travel to another galaxy, another dimension, and just declare herself to be who and whatever she wanted to be. And that Tina Turner did that in real life. She said at age like 40 or her late 30s, you know, I want to be an actual rock and roll star. I want to sell up stadiums. I want, you know, a big tour you know, she wanted to be a black female rock star. And so, you know, there were people who doubted her. Of course, there are always people who doubt women, especially black women. And the fact that she was actually able to do that, again, at an age when that industry tells women that they're done, I just found that incredible. I also found it really beautiful that she found love albeit quote unquote later in her life, she found it and she has it and she's in Switzerland with her very loving husband. And I don't know, I walked away from it feeling like, no, but I don't walk away from anyone's life story feeling 100%, you know, warm and fuzzy, but I did take some, you know, I thought that there were some good um, takeaways from that movie and if you get a chance to watch the documentary give it a go I thought it was really well done I am going to go back and read her most recent autobiography my former co-host Nikki hey boo she has been trying to admonish me to read that book for a couple years now and she says that in the book she Tina Turner actually does go into more detail about the the happiness that she found later in life and that makes me that makes me happy um I wouldn't want to live my whole life having never been loved properly and I think that's true for some you know for some people and I think that that is a tragedy I think love is one of the greatest things that we can experience on this earth even you know not just romantic love but familial love and platonic love there's all kinds of love to receive and to give out there so I don't know. I walked away from it feeling, I felt empowered, honestly. Um, I saw myself in some parts of Tina Turner just in the way that, you know, insecure men can get a hold of you and manipulate you and, and, you know, take you off your path. And if you're fortunate enough and have enough awareness and enough support and enough of a sense of purpose, you can get out of that and, and reclaim yourself and redefine yourself. And maybe that's the part that I really needed. But anywho, I feel like I'm repeating myself. Watch the documentary if you get a chance. I quite enjoyed it. The other thing I want to talk about is how Lil Nas X has the internet in a tizzy, particularly the Christian community. And there are people coming out and denouncing him and all of these things because he put out a music video with some satanic themes where he slides down a stripper pole and gives Satan a lap dance. And people are just 
I mean, in an uproar. And what I want to say to that, first of all, is that you cannot condemn an entire group of people, particularly a group of people who looks like you. You can't condemn them their whole lives. Tell them that there is no place for them in church as they are. Tell them that how they were born is wrong and you know, tell them that anyone who falls outside of this very rigid, strict definition of what a family is supposed to be, that they don't belong. You can't, you can't preach that for decades, for centuries, for however long, and then also expect for that group of people to hold precious the things that you hold precious. You have been telling this man that he's going to go to hell for his for his whole life just because of who he is because of how he identifies because of how he wants to date or love or whatever I also I find it really interesting that um (laughs) when people talk about gay marriage or gay relationships or just you know the gay community as a whole it's like oh love is love and it's like Do you love every person that you have ever dated or been with as a straight person? No, they don't have to be in love to just want to exist as people. But another conversation for another day. I just think, I just think it's funny how um, you tell gay people, LGBTQIA+, you tell that whole community that they don't belong and that they're going to hell and then you get mad at them. For saying, okay, well, I don't want to belong. You cannot alienate an entire group of people from a religion, from a church, from an organization, and get mad when they then don't have any relationship or the relationship that you want them to have to that organization. And what this past week or a couple of days has highlighted is something I've been thinking about for a while, which is the fact that Black people, by and large, are very socially conservative. And I was talking about this on Twitter today, the fact that be it a vestige of slavery where all we had was God and the prospect of a better life in the afterlife or the fact that church was the cornerstone of social life or you know, black people having to or trying to rely on respectability politics as a means of survival. There's all these different reasons why we are so socially conservative and also then the hypocrisy is just baked right in because normal everyday people cannot possibly measure up to these insane standards that the black church puts on people. It's just not reasonable. Um, you know, if it matters, of you know, I believe in God. I don't, I don't really know how people operate not believing in God or in some sort of higher power, but I am not an evangelist. I don't believe in telling people of other religions that their religion is the wrong one. I don't believe in forcing my beliefs on anybody. I think that for those who believe in a higher power, most of us with sense 
Think of God as someone who just wants us to be kind to each other, to take care of each other, to be good stewards of the earth that they provided for us and, you know, to provide us with hope and an explanation for the great beyond. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I do not look at God as being this punitive, jealous, vindictive, hateful angry sky daddy who's keeping count of I I just don't that does not work for me I fully understand and respect the good parts of what the black church has done for us as far as um when we didn't have anything else giving us a sense of community and a sense of peace and a sense of hope I you know If you don't have that, then what do you have? You know, what's the point of living if you don't have hope that there is something better, that there can be something better while you're here, not just in the afterlife. I think that's what was, you know, a huge thing during slavery is just like, yeah, everything is terrible, not terrible now, but when you die, it's going to be great. And it's just like, well, where is it written that we got to suffer right now? Um, I really think that to this day, this vestige of slavery has a stronghold on our community that is making us suffer, not only socially, by creating these vulnerable groups of people within our community, but I think it's also causing us to suffer politically. And I've been thinking about that for a while, which is really interesting. I think that, you know, speaking of God, he really, you know, was trying to show me something. I have been reading a book by... Charles M. Blow, who is one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite political commentators. And he has a book called The Devil You Know, (laughs) a Black Power Manifesto, where in this book, he's basically saying that black people should make a second great migration back to the South to establish um, to, to establish political power in majority black cities. It's a very interesting read. But I found it really interesting that just as I was thinking about the way that the the social conservatism of black people that I came across um, this chapter as I'm nearing the end of this book, where he talks about how hope has been used to kind of pacify black people and that when Democrats pander to the black community for votes, they use this notion of hope and morality, but they don't really come to us with solid legislation or um, an actual plan or, you know, like I said, just concrete things that they are going to do. You know, they really play up on this moral, this moral ground because they know what, um, what Christianity and what the church means to the black community and were it not for the raging racism in the Republican Party, I think it would be quite easy for them to solicit a lot more black votes. And that's actually really quite scary. So I just want to read um, this small part that I came across literally as I was thinking about this today. Um, just to give you some context that I didn't make this up. <laughs> These are facts. So um, in the in this book, um, Charles Blow says, black people in the South also were and remain more religious and more conservative than their counterparts in the North. So according to a Gallup poll, 
Black people were the most religious of all races, and black people in the South were more religious than in any other region. For example, 54% of blacks in the South were highly religious compared with just 39% in the West and 41% in the Northeast. And so obviously, like he's laid this out, you know, as proof of like a number of things, like it has a lot more context, but I just found it really interesting that I came across that, that section in the book just as I was having this thought. And I just would really like for us to re revamp the black church so that it could be more inclusive of more of us because I do think that it's an important cultural factor but I also don't want to force religion on everybody um I just don't I can't just like someone can't come and tell me that there is no God I can't go and convince someone else that there is and I just don't think that that's really my job or or my purpose you know my purpose is to help people <laughs> to think critically and to be well and you know on occasion look really good while doing it but I that's just not that's not my ministry you know going out and converting people is not my ministry and I want for us to get to a place where even just from a providing services to the community in which black churches you know reside there has to be more that we can do to be more inclusive and to stop xing out these people you know anyone who doesn't adhere to a very rigid rigid standard of you know who and what a good person is supposed to be i just i'm exhausted with it um and don't get me wrong Every now and again, I listen to a good sermon on YouTube, just like the next person. But when it gets to the, you know, the things that I just sometimes don't feel like there's a, a place for me in the Bible, the way that it that it's taught, you know, like as a woman, I've been told by Christian pastors that until I find a man, until I find a husband, I'm not a whole person. Uh, it, girl, wait. I feel like when I was told that God was rolling his eyes like, ain't nobody told you to tell this woman that, you know, things like that. There's no place for me in that kind of church or in that kind of belief system. And, you know, back to my original point, you cannot tell certain people that who they are isn't acceptable. Even, you know, going into church and being pulled aside by the church elders that you shouldn't wear open toe shoes because men in the church might have a foot fetish. Well, sweetie, are you going to pull aside the men in the church who have the foot fetish and ask them why that's their focus in the house of the Lord? You know, I I don't have the energy for it. Um, <laughs> so I want for us to, as a community, as human people, as good global citizens, the things that offend you the most are the things that you need to think on the most as well. Ask yourself why exactly that imagery mess with you so much when there has been satanic imagery around and in music and in artistic expression for a really long time but for some reason for some reason homosexuality is where you draw the line okay <laughs> sit with yourself and ask yourself what it is girl um <laughs> so the other thing that I have um been thinking on and why I did not come with an episode uh, the week before last is because I really wanted to address this issue, but I wanted to do it in a way that was productive and 
you know, I'm not a doctor, but I, I do believe in, you know, do no harm in as much as I can avoid it. I want to spark conversations that lead people to a place of peace and a, ple- a, a, pa- a place of, of mental freedom, I guess, of, you know, there's so many things that we have been taught, you know, in, in church, in, you know, a lot of spaces that just aren't really productive for the way people live their lives. And so I always want to make sure that I'm using my platform to push the conversation in a good and productive direction. So I wanted to take some time to read and to listen and to make sure that I got my words correct when it comes to the rise in violence against the Asian community in our country. So As a black woman, I have to first say that the first time that I was criminalized was by Asian people in my own community, growing up in a predominantly black community. Um, I remember watching my mom, who is a licensed cosmetologist, have to spend money in a store with people who did not respect us, who followed us around who, you know, never offered help, who never were very welcoming um, of us in our own community. And it didn't ever feel like they really wanted to be in community with us. And um, I remember having a few Asian friends growing up and their friends, their, their parents not really allowing them to engage with me outside of school or, um, So I grew up for a really long time just assuming that Asian people did not want to be in community with black people. I assumed that they wanted to either align with white people or just stay to themselves. And I just resigned to that belief for a really long time. And of course, I've always been open to, you know, there being an outlier, being someone who, you know, could or would change my mind about that. But by and large, I just did not receive a very warm welcome or interaction from Asian people in my community. And what I'm realizing as of late is that that is by design. Um, From the things that I've been reading, the things that I've been listening to, and conversations that I had with one of my Asian friends who has taught me um, quite a bit about identity, about feminism, about being a good global citizen, about you know, being an ally, um, period. I'm really grateful for her friendship. And so I reached out to her just to see how she was coping with everything. Once the news surfaced about the, um, domestic terrorist attack (laughs) in Atlanta, because that's what that was. It was a, a hate crime. I don't care what anyone says. Um, where these people were murdered And I wanted to check in with her just to see if she was okay. And we ended up having this really good conversation where, you know, I was like, you know, to be honest, (laughs) this is what my experience has been. And then, you know, in the age of the internet, we have been able to see just how prevalent anti-blackness is within non-black people of color. And then there's also this unique kind of anti-African-American-ness that comes from Black immigrants as well. So, you know, someone who I don't know any roots of my family outside of 
this country, um, it sucks to feel like you aren't really welcome among anyone but your literal own um, being African-Americans. I've always found it really frustrating for immigrants of any identity to come to our country with this adopted view of black people when the Civil Rights Act is a huge part of the reason why immigration is um, was possible for them. Um, there's no real, you know, reverence or appreciation. There is the same kind of anti-blackness that white people have towards us. And I think that that might quite possibly be America's greatest export is racism towards black people. <laughs> and I know that it's a global issue, obviously. Uh, you know, the world over, darker-skinned people seem to be at the bottom of the barrel. The world over, even in, you know, exclusively black societies. So with all of that being said, there are a lot of reasons why... It's very easy to lean into this fracture between black people and non-black people of color, right? Because we get that kind of disdain, racism, hatred from them as well. So for people who look to black people to say, what are we going to do about um what's happening in the Asian community. I don't really think that we're the people who are, uh, we're, you know, statistically, we're not the people who are, who are attacking Asian people. Um, I listened to a really good episode of Code Switch by NPR, which I'm going to put a link to in this episode description, because I thought that it was really beneficial in, um, establishing just kind of a framework for how we can move forward. And the University of Michigan, did a study in 2020 where they were tracking these crimes as they were rising. And I want to be very clear, obviously, the the numbers are spotty because we don't know statistics that weren't reported, you know, crimes that weren't reported. But overwhelmingly, it was white people who were attacking Asian people. 90% of the people who attacked Asian people were white, 5% were black. So even the belief that this is the result of black on Asian crime. That's a myth that I think, again, is born of white supremacy. And as I was talking with my friend, what I came to realize is that Asian people do not have it as easy in this country as I had been led to believe. I really thought that because they were viewed as model minorities and stereotypes about them, um, mean that they get hired, that they get chosen, that they get, you know, admitted, um, that they get all of these things. It never occurred to me what the other side of the, the identity of being the model minority is, or even the fetishization of Asian women. Um, you know, it, it speaks to the fact that desirability seems to be the highest calling for a woman's life and they constantly talk about how Asian women are the most desired women on dating apps but I don't think it ever occurred to anybody what it must be like for Asian women to date who don't fall into that stereotype people who think that Asian women are just like all these like submissive like comfort women I'm like have you ever met an Asian woman I don't know an Asian woman yet in my life 
who fulfills that stereotype. I, I don't know where they are because none of my friends. <laughs> um, so I just want to share a little bit of the text conversation that um, I have with my friend. If she's listening, thank you so much for this and for agreeing to let me read this on the podcast. Um, so this is what she says. We will forever, quote unquote, not belong here. And the message is that to protect ourselves, we need to assimilate, stay quiet and make as little noise as possible. And I think because we have not been seen as a threat by whites, the way the black community has been, the put your head down, don't say anything, don't make trouble, assimilate and don't call attention to yourself. Protective reaction to white supremacy has been where Asian people have operated, internalizing the anti-blackness that whites have perpetrated along the way. But more and more younger Asians have realized how much erasure has happened in our communities because of that how much heritage and pride has been lost in that strategy. And we've also realized that regardless of our parents taking that road, the white establishment will still come for us. So now we're trying to convince our parents that anti-blackness is our fight too. I really think the answer lies in understanding and unpacking the very unique ways that white supremacy has scarred and oppressed each individual community. For example, white supremacy has refused to allow black folks to simply exist, but also has simultaneously refused to allow y'all to forget your blackness. But in the Asian community, white supremacy has perpetrated an erasure and othering. So I was really moved by that conversation um, and the fact that she also said, you know, at any point, the white establishment could deem you no longer the model minority. So it's a tenuous relationship at best and a harmful, abusive relationship at worst. And it pits folks of color against each other, which also works to the benefit of the white majority. I was so just moved by that conversation because I had never due to, you know, the model minority stereotype, I never heard um, a white person say what it was like for them to be, I'd never heard an Asian American express that to me before. And I was really happy that she had that conversation with me because in my mind, I thought that they were just, you know, trailing along, happy to align with whiteness. And the fact that, you know, they're experiencing this loss of their culture and even listening to some of the anecdotes on um, some other NPR episodes as well, where this one Asian student wrote in and said that, you know, her closest friends are white and they bully her um, for being Asian. She's not really allowed to talk about what it's like or to express any kind of discomfort and, you know, she doesn't know how to navigate that friendship. And it's like, well, that's not a friendship. Anyone who doesn't create a safe space for you to exist as you are, that's not that's not a friendship or a relationship that you need to be a part of. But I said all that to say, while I do not think that this is our fight, I think that all of this comes down to white people needing to make some very serious changes about the way they abuse people of color of all identities I think that what we as the black community can do while we are still fighting for our own liberation, you know, and and still learning a lot of our own history, I think that there are these intersections between our history and the history of non-black people of color. 
Um, that's another thing that I really took away from the NPR episode that, like I said, I will link to in this episode description that we have been denied a lot of the history of Asian Americans in this country. Um, some of the things that I learned about in that episode, I was like, wow, how have I never heard of this? And I imagine it's the same way that people had never heard of the Tulsa race riots. And I think all of that is by design. I think white supremacy has really created a system where as long as minorities are in conflict with each other, we will never unify and be in conflict with them. That's not something that I want to be a part of. And I do also want to say that non-black people of color have to reckon with the ways in which they have upheld white supremacy. They have to unlearn that shit too. And while, again, as a black woman, I cannot deny what my experience is and has been an experience of my brothers and, you know, the, the black men in my life, while we do endure a very specific kind of violence and hatred and anger, we don't have the monopoly on oppression and we don't need to be out here playing the oppression Olympics when there are all of these similarities between our experiences of just trying to survive and you know Asian people have their own way of assimilating and you know like I said earlier when you look at the role that religion and conservatism social conservatism has played in our community that is a means of survival telling people to you know don't air their dirty laundry and you know, only be a certain kind of way in public and dress this kind of way. And, you know, um, someone responded to, to my tweet, you know, about this topic and said they were having a conversation with an elder where that person told them that if they see a group of black men, um, they, you know, are okay with stop and frisk because a group of black men are probably up to no good. And that was a black elder saying that, you know, these beliefs are, deeply ingrained in a lot of people anti-blackness is deeply ingrained even in black people there's a lot to unpack there's a lot to work on there's a lot that we that needs to be fixed and I think the best thing that we can do to be allies to the Asian community while they're you know fighting this fight is to educate ourselves about their history as well as our own and um the ways in which we can help each other. But like I said, I think it's it's also important for those communities to reckon with the ways in which they have been harmful to us. So um, check on your friends, check on yourself, <laughs> um, you know, and just educate yourself in these different areas as much as you can. And I think a good starting point is ask yourself what offends you and why and look at why that offends you. Um that's something that, you know, I'm actively doing because like I said, I did not grow up thinking that Asian people wanted anything to do with black people. And I felt that anti-blackness most of my life. And I'm now learning, you know, so much about where that comes from, where the desire for that assimilation comes from and, you know, that erasure and that towing the line. And, you know, we're all doing all of these things and making these small compromises with our identities, with how we speak, with how we dress, with how we do our hair, all of these things in order to survive and to thrive in this country. And maybe if we can all educate ourselves about each individual community struggles, like my friend said, maybe then we can push the needle forward and we just have to keep trying and um, 
you know, my heart goes out to all of those who have lost someone. Um, the, the past year or so has been rough in so many different ways, but I'm just hoping that this will be a turning point for a lot of change in a lot of areas. And I just want to use my platform to make sure that I'm doing my part in order to facilitate that change. So there will be resources in this episode description for you to do the same. By no means am I saying stop, you know, fighting for black liberation or, you know, I'm not saying put down your James Baldwin books and pick up something else. I'm just saying where possible, educate yourself and be willing to listen to other people's struggles. And, you know, maybe you will hear some something in another person's struggle that will um, unlock something in you about how you can be a better global citizen as well. So it's not to say, again, that that's our fight, but there are things that we can do in order to um, facilitate that allyship. So thank you guys for listening. I know this episode is a little bit heavy, but these were things that were on my mind and I really wanted to take my time to tie all of those things together and really, um, yeah, just wanted to tie together these, these thoughts that I had swirling in my head for the past like month or so as I'm reading this book, as I'm listening to these different takes on, um, existing in America. So thank you guys for listening. Be sure to, um, like and subscribe and rate and review if you're listening on iTunes and be sure to join my Patreon if you'd like to help me to continue creating free content and I will see you guys for the next episode or I will talk to you guys the next episode. All right, bye.